Let's open our Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. As we're opening up God's Word, let's open up our hearts in prayer to Him. Father, we come to You in the name of Your Son, Jesus, and we are so grateful that we have the kind of access that we do. We're thankful that we come not as paupers who are begging for an audience. We don't come as distant strangers, as your, as your, as believers, but we come as children. And a kingdom of priests is is, is what you have made uh, when you made us again in your Son. And we're thankful, Lord. We were once people who were far off, but now we've been brought near. And that happened through the blood of your Son. And we're thankful for the intercessory relationship that we have with you and the one that he has with you as our intercessor, our high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, an eternal high priest, based on one sacrifice that was enough. And we praise you. And we come now and we ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would take the words of Scripture which are your words, <clears throat> directly from you, and, and we would receive them as such. Not only that this is your word, but that your word is sufficient. And when our Lord prayed for us and said, Sanctify them by thy word, thy word is truth, then we know that we stand to be washed and cleansed practically today. We stand with anticipation and expectation that we stand to be able to advance further in Christ's likeness today through the receiving in faith and meekness and expectation of your prayer word. And I pray, Father, that when I'm asking you to speak because you've spoken and you will speak because you'll make this alive. It is alive. But God, I guess the prayer would be, our, our, our primary prayer would be, to prepare our hearts as listeners. Thank you so very much for uh, the fact that we can now ask you, would you turn the soil of our heart like, like, a, like a, a, pair, a set of hairs behind a tractor turns a garden and that you would take that rich soil and just turn it up so that when this falls down, it'll go down and make its way easily into our heart. It won't have to struggle. And as it does, that deep roots would grow. And we'd be firmly established as believers. We'd be established believers, not believers that are given to uh, this, that, and the other, and every wind and wave of doctrine, but we would be established. And that what goes on beneath the surface is, is uh, directly, uh, directly impacts what happens above the surface, and that's fruitfulness. And God, I, you know, we do mark time and you give us these things and you give us calendars and we have reflections we can make on it. But I would ask God that this, this, this season we would forget what's behind and we would press on to the upward call that we have in Christ Jesus. And in so doing that, that we would nestle up to the Apostle Paul when he had the faith and the boldness, not the 
not the arrogance, but the boldness because of his faith to say, if I stick around here, if I stick around here, it'll mean fruit. And uh, Lord, may, 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 may that be true of us. And uh, because you're glorified by fruit. And we say we want your li- our lives to bring you glory. And you've, you've given us the, the uh, truth of how you do that. And so Lord, may that be the case this morning. Open up our hearts to what you have to say. And if our feelings differ from what you have to say, help us to go with what you have to say. If our experience differs with what you have to say, help us to go with what you have to say. If what we think other people think differs with what you say and what we've heard from others, help us to go with what you say. Every single time. And by your grace, I know you're going to answer that prayer because it's, it is your will. And we pray it back to you, Lord. For you gave us the appetite and the will to even pray it in the first place. In the sweet name of your Son we pray. Amen. Let's read, if you will. If you're physically able to, stand with me as we read. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14 and following. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the Word of God. May you be seated, please. Thank you so very much for standing. Last week, coming off of the Christmas season, we were sharing that, you know what, we got two times uh, out of the year in particular that the world doesn't, I'm not saying they fall down and worship Jesus and accept Him. The Bible doesn't teach that everybody's going to be saved. It doesn't teach that. The way to destruction is broad. Many are going to find that, and the way that is to life is narrow, and there are few that find it. But, at least during two times of the year, in particular, people, will, if they ever go to church at all, um, they go to church at these two times of the year, and that's at Christmas and Easter. And then, uh, so, we, we need to take advantage of that, at least while the attention is at least a little bit toward the Savior. But our disposition is this. As far as the Scriptures are concerned, today is Christmas. Today is Easter. And today, we hang our hope in Christ's return. Uh, that's why we the Lord's Supper. So the celebration for us is not Christmas. The celebration for us will occur in about 45 minutes when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper brings all those in, doesn't it? That He came, He lived, He died, He was buried, He rose again, and He's coming again. Hallelujah. 
And so that's our celebration. But so we'll nestle up and, 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 and do what we can to give witness. And we use this verse as, as kind of a, a, a catalyst for that. Make no mistake, and, and don't misinterpret what we're teaching here. When the Bible says in verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. We're not denying that He came in the flesh. What we're saying is, though, is He didn't stay here. He is an exalted position. John saw that in Revelation chapter 1. It is heresy to affirm the humanity of Christ and deny His deity. It is heresy to affirm His deity and deny His humanity. Both of those are wrong. But the bottom line is, Christ is God, and He is Lord, and He we don't know Him according to the flesh anymore. John reclined with him at the Last Supper. But the next time John saw him, he fell on his face in worship because he had seen the glorified Christ. It was a whole different scenario then. And even when Peter was converted, we saw last week, or Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by the holiness of God and the glory of Christ who appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And he became a believer. And then we went on last week to talk about the fact that our view of Christ is everything. What we believe about Jesus Christ, your eternity and my eternity rises and falls based on what we believe about Jesus Christ. He is not a subject of the Bible. He is the subject of the Bible. And and so we have to come to a biblical agreement. Salvation is to come to an agreement in repentance and faith that the record of Scripture concerning God's Son is true. That's why, like we've talked about many times before in Matthew 7, 21, when it says, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus, he says, you know what, wait a minute, you're lawless rebels. I never knew you. The reason that's a problem is because God the Father, yes, cool with Him. God the Son, Lord, Lord, but there's a Lord missing. And it's God the Holy Spirit. And the reason that's important is because God the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. And these folks never came into agreement to the biblical Jesus. Everybody has a Jesus, but the only one who can save you and the only one who is Lord is the biblical Jesus. Don't ever forget that. Because Jesus said in the end times, many people are going to come in my name. My, do we see that going on like crazy right now. So many. Come in. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. It's the only time, one of the few times in the Bible I remember God saying, don't believe. Most of the Bible is believe. That one is, don't you believe it. And so look, so here, and here it is. Our view of Christ, like we talked about last week, directly impacts, directly influences. As a matter of fact, our view of Christ determines how we view lost people, how we view ourselves, and how we view saved people. Now we went through two of those last week, or part of them. My favorite ones is one the way you view saved people. Uh, but as it relates to lost people in summary last week, there are two types of people. Everybody, we talked about it, we know there are different categorizations of people based on their intellect, based on their color of their skin is the most important one, most primary popular one. It's not right, but it's the way we do it. Where they come from, their accent, their geographical origin, whatever we do. We divide all these people. God has two divisions. They're just two. It makes it simple, doesn't it? It's amazing how you can take a computer 
and, and program the most complex computer that there is using a combination of two digits, zero and one. That's the bottom line of, a, of the way a computer is programmed. And that's on purpose. Because God even embeds in computer programming a picture of Himself. You're either in light or you're in darkness. You're either unrighteous or you're either righteous. You're either in sin or you're walking in righteousness. And you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. And the two categories of people, the only two, a lot of times we'll say saved and lost. Here's probably the best way to say it. There are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And that's it. There's no third rail. There's no other option. That's it. You and I were born in Adam. But when we got born again, when Christ gave us the gift, and their gifts, by the way, of repentance and faith, then we were now immersed into Christ. We were taken... Hold on. It wasn't that we were in Adam and then God modified this Adam guy and put him in Christ. It is that in Adam we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But in Christ, we die to Him. And then we're put into a brand new class of people. That's what it says. Look at it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. In Christ is not a souped up Adam. In Christ is dead to Adam and put into the spiritual loins of God's Son and part of His family. In Adam, all are condemned. In Christ, they're all justified. In Adam, they're enemies. You were once an enemy, so was I. In Christ, we're reconciled friends. In Adam, for those in Adam, if you die in Adam, there are two judgments. The great white throne judgment, which is where all non-believers will be, and the judgment seat of Christ where all believers will be. At the great white throne of judgment, it will be all justice. There will be no mercy there. At the mercy seat of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, it's all mercy. For the believer, it's mercy. For the non-believer, it's justice. That's the way it's going to be. In Adam, you're far off. In Christ, you are brought near. In Adam, God doesn't know you and you don't know Him except as Creator. But in Christ, not only does He know us and we know Him, but we know Him as children and we know Him as our Abba, Father, Daddy. See, can you see the difference? We, don't, we can't even put them close together, can we? What it means to be in Adam and in Christ. That's it. And that's what he's saying. We don't regard people according to the flesh anymore. Listen, away with that. We don't expect anything from the flesh except sin. We don't expect anybody to clean up their act. Do you know any... Listen, if you have a grandmother and she's the sweetest woman on the face of the earth and she's always been kind and she cooks well and she has always been good to you, if she is not saved, she is ungodly. And she is unrighteous and needs to be saved. Dear ones, that is not to hurt somebody's feelings. That's to help somebody. The best person you know, sometimes we can be lured into a trap that somebody is just so good, so loving, so kind, and so benevolent, they don't even seem to need salvation. That's not true. 
They desperately need salvation. As a matter of fact, it is harder for them to come by and see their need than it is for somebody who's on skid row. At least they know there's a problem. So we don't regard lost people. Lost people ain't lost. They need to be saved. We're, reconcil- we're ministers of reconciliation and our message to them is be reconciled to God. Why? Because implicit in that statement is this. Apart from Christ, you are not reconciled to God. You came in this world that way and there is no hope apart from salvation. Then, as a believer, we moved on into it. Oh, In 2 Corinthians 5.14, as a believer, and you take all that list, what it means to be in Christ. And by the way, We've plumbed these depths before. What does it mean to be justified? The gavel has come down. And God has declared you and I not guilty. Innocent of all charges in Christ. That's as good as it gets. Now, what kind of love has been lavished on us? Well, look at this. Look at what it says. For 14, for the love of Christ compels us, it moves us, it motivates us because we judge thus. What's the judgment? Here's the judgment. The summary judgment here that he's about to give is God's declaration of the power and the acceptance of His Son's death, burial, and resurrection and what it means to you and I. We judge this. Here's the judgment. One died for all, Christ. Then all died. Remember, He didn't just die as our substitute. He died as our representative. He didn't just die as our substitute. He did. But He died as our representative. Which means that when He died, we died. When He was buried, we were buried. And when He was raised, we were raised. And then it says that love compels us that we no longer live for ourselves but the one who died for us and rose again. Look what it says. What kind of love is it? What kind of love compels that? What kind of love motivates that? What kind of love motivates the Apostle Paul to get to such a spiritual place that he got in his relationship with Jesus? That he was so emptied of himself and so full of the Lord. He had an understanding of the love of Christ that we stand to gain if we'll appropriate it by faith. What kind of love is it? Look at 1 John chapter 3. What kind of love is it? It's this, this, this kind of love. Here it is. That God would take, and I hate to keep pointing to you guys on this side as Adam. I'm not saying y'all are in Adam. (laughs) But God would take this bunch over here in Adam. Watch this. Who were enemies, ungodly sinners, without help, without strength. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5. Take you and I. Pull us out of that line. I'm talking about pull us out of it. Again, remember the distinction. Not that He's going to brush us off and comb our hair and dress us up a little bit and then take us over here and move us to the Jesus side. No, it's not that. He takes us out of this side and then plants us and immerses us and bursts us to the spiritual ones of Christ into into His Son. And what kind of love is it that does that? It's this kind of love. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Some translations say lavished. I like that better lavished on us. God's just like, I will throw all the love. I can. You, don't, you can't imagine. I'm going to just throw, I'm going to drown you in it. In my love, grace, and mercy. He's lavished it on us. Why? What? That we who were once condemned 
enemies who deserve nothing but justice from God, who were far off or not known by God, were only know Him as Creator, and who are sinners and rebellion, rebel, rebels to the core, that He would take us, that group right there, and make us His children. And the means by which He did it. Not that He just said, okay, I'm a kind, benevolent God, and I'm going to overlook your sin, and I'm just going to take you over here and throw you over here. The means by which He did it was to crush His only begotten Son. So this is the kind of love that He's bestowed on us. We who used to be this are now called children of God. The world doesn't know us. We're aberrations. We're foreign. We're, we're mutations. We're, we look weird. We act weird. We ought to. We're children of God. Not yet been revealed what we will be. We know this. When He's revealed, we'll be like it because we'll see Him as He is. And we talked about that. That we're now, we once were in Adam now, we're in Christ. Look at verse 16. I'm still summarizing last week. Isn't that something? Sorry. In verse 16, Therefore from now on regard no one according to the flesh, even though we know Christ is according to the flesh, we know Him thus no longer. Implication for you and I, even though you knew and know and very familiar with what you once were, don't regard yourself anymore by what you once were. Because you are not what you once were. Because we've been identified with Christ. We died, we were buried, we were raised. Why do we get tripped over this? There's many reasons, two of which I'd like to talk about this morning. One is our feelings. Our feelings. We have said from this pulpit many occasions, as a believer, if you're going to grow in your faith, when your feelings don't line up with the truth, you better go with the truth. You better go with your truth. Your emotions are not reliable. Your emotions are not trustworthy. They weren't put there for you to trust them. God is trustworthy. You have to come to a place where you go, you know what? It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how I look. Nor does it matter what other people say. It's what God says that matters. Did you know the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church he was reaching out to them and there were some factions there were casting down on his apostleship and his record and started slandering him. And he said, you know what? Let me just tell you this. It's a small thing if I'm judged by you. Small. Because here's the deal. I'm judged by him. And not that I don't care, Paul, what you think. I'm not going to try to not straighten out the record the best I can. It's a small thing to be judged by you. I've been judged by him. And the judgment is this. In Christ, I'm His Son. Our feelings and our experience this is where the devil really plays around too. He plays around with both of them. Our experience. We go look at our life and go, you know what? All the assertions of faith that are in the Bible, all the changes that were supposed to come about, man, it seems like there are very little of them taking place in my life right now. Oh, you know something. We've got, we've got to receive biblical truth in the light and the context in which it's given. You could, pull it, you could pull something out of the Scripture and just about make the Bible say anything you want it to say to suit whatever agenda you want to suit. That's going all over America right now. People preaching this book as if God came to make you prosperous and wealthy and that's all His interest lies. I want you to be happy. I want you to be prosperous. I want you to be wealthy. It's all about what I can do for you. 
and to use the Bible to do it. If you cherry pick it, you can use it to do it. But here's contextually the way we've got to mind ourselves. Sometimes God speaks of us as believer in position, and sometimes He speaks of us in practice. And we need to distinguish between the two. But I want you to listen to this carefully. In practice, not position now. So don't don't write me off as a heretic. In practice, not position, but in practice, the new birth does not alter the flesh. It doesn't change it one iota. Apart from Christ, you're still the king of your world. I heard a rock star say not too long ago, and I wrote this down, and I put it in Romans study because I thought, boy, if that isn't just the mantra of the flesh, I don't, I've never heard it better. This is the mantra of the flesh. He said, this is the way I look at it. This is my world, and you just happen to be living in it. That's the flesh. This is my world, and you just happen to be living in it. Matter of fact, you exist to help me. You exist to fulfill my agenda and my plans. And if it takes it, I'll manipulate you and do whatever I want to do with you so that I can fulfill my plan. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. And the flesh is like that even after the new birth. The flesh does not, in practice, positionally, the new birth kills it. But in practice, it's still alive because sin still dwells in us in our mortal flesh. And because of that, we deal with this tension. And in and, and some ways, it's good, this tension between the disconnect, between how what God says about us in position and how we're acting in practice. There's a tension there. We go look at that and we go, wait a minute now, hold on a second. The gap's wide. That's good if it brings about conviction of sin in order to, 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 to see it narrowed in Christian growth. But if it's bad, it's bad when it's condemnation. Oh, you're just not one of His. Oh, look at you. Look what you just did. Look what you just said. And boy, the devil makes a heyday with that. Well, what we should do with that is go to 1 John. Let's go together, if you will. 1 John. You know where. Chapter 1. It will be a great day in my life and in yours when we can distinguish distinguish the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is from the Lord and it is specific. You just lost your temper in traffic. I said that because that applies to everybody here who has a driver's license. <laughs> Amen. We were just talking about that, Jonah. I'm saying that's when I, have to, I need to take the fish off the back of my car. <laughs> Too much accountability. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. Okay. And He convicts us right there. You go. It's like it's like committing a technical foul in basketball. You were just supposed to do that in basketball. Referee goes like <whistles> and blows the whistle. What are you supposed to do? Supposed to raise your hand. It's me. That's it. We're in a basketball game, and with the Holy, when you and I sin, the Holy Spirit calls us out like that, and we raise our hand. That's confession. 
And then you keep playing the game. See, condemnation, though, is designed to get you out of the game. You get over on the bench where you belong. You wash out. Condemnation is from the world, flesh, and devil. And conviction is from the Holy Spirit. And when we are convicted, what we need to do with it is this. John 1.8 now we're going to have to come back to this verse because if y'all don't, you'll get mad at me. We will come back to it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us at all. Okay, what is that? Is that positional truth or is it practical truth? Practical, isn't it? It's practical, isn't it? Positionally, that's not true. Practically, it is. So when you read the Bible and you see something like that, you've got to go, okay, Lord, is that positional truth or is that practical truth? That is practical truth. In practice, I still sin. Do you? Nancy? Nancy's not in big time. Amen. <laughs> but if we confess our sins, Holy Spirit, hold up your hand. That word confession means agreement. It means to say the same thing about, about what you did that God says about it. You say, okay, God, rather than trying to justify myself and take my side, I'm coming to yours against me. And I agree with you that that was sin. And what does He do? He's faithful. What does that mean? He do it every time. You ask for forgiveness? Yes, sir. You're forgiven. And it's just for Him to forgive me. Why is it just for God to forgive me? It is a just act on God's part for you and I in practical righteousness. It is a just act for Him to forgive us at any time of any confessed sin, it is just for Him to do it. Now, why is that just? How can God continue to be holy and just and at the same time say to me in the middle of the basketball game after I lost my temper in traffic and blemished the fish on the back of my car and I did that, how is it that it's just for God to just immediately forgive me? How? The penalty has been paid. It's double jeopardy for Him to punish me again. He will not punish me again. Lot, get out of Sodom. Why? Because he was a righteous guy. And he can't bring judgment because judgment has already been imposed on God's Son in mind of your place. And he's faithful and just to forgive us fellowship and cleanse us from all unrighteousness relationship. Fellowship, he forgave us right there because it's impairing my fellowship. I keep getting, if I keep getting mad in traffic, and it becomes a pattern in my life, it's going to mess up my fellowship with the Lord. Is that not true? Alright, so, He forgives us of that, and then, on top of that, all the rest of the stuff that He hasn't yet revealed to you is already taken care of. Because if God dumped the bucket this morning on me as to everything that doesn't look like His Son in my life, in practice, not position, but in practice, I would quit. I'd be so overwhelmed, I couldn't take it. And you couldn't either. You couldn't. You couldn't take it. You would go, oh, I might as well give up. Take me now, Lord. I might as well give up. So he cleanses it. Look at it. He forgives the sin that you confessed. That's what was made known. And cleanses us all from all unrighteousness for all the rest of the stuff he's still working on. How about that? Isn't that wonderful? So that's why we should keep short accounts. But here we go again. Listen to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Okay, let me ask you. You know the answer. Is that positional truth or is that practical truth? 
It's practical. It's practical. If I say, oh, I never sin. Brian comes from a tradition, was saved in a tradition where they really believe that you can get to a place where you never sin. Did you know that people, did you know there are professing Christians that believe that? You get to a place where you never sin. If you say you're at a place where you've never sinned, you just committed one. What does it say? It means God's a liar and the Word's not in us. That's practical truth, right? Not positional truth. But there's an interplay in the Bible between the two. And we have to distinguish between one or the other so we can properly interpret God's Word. Because if we don't, we'll live things like Brian's tradition came from, from the Word of God that says, I'm sinless, I've reached the sinless state. And the Lord says, no, you haven't. Not practically. Positionally you have, but not practically. So we've got to distinguish between the two. So our feelings and our experience trip us up. Position, practice, this matters. But here's the lie. Here's the lie. This is it. This is why positional truth is so important. It's not only that we need to distinguish between positional truth and practical truth, and the Bible does it all the time, but positional truth is the key and is the motivation and the power and the appetite to live out practical truth. Here's the lie. Here's the lie. The devil and the flesh and the world would have us believe. And you know the devil gets blamed for a lot of things he has anything to do with. But the lie is that we have to make some changes. But the truth is the changes have already been made. And when we receive that the changes have already been made, then we'll be empowered to make changes. Does that make sense? I can't say that again. So, so in other words, he's whispering, you know, you've got to get your act together. I, I, I've shared the gospel just this last week. I forgot who it was, or a week or two. And you could tell the wrestling was this. I've got, got to get prepared to come to Christ. I've got, got to get some things... You know, yeah, I know that guy that told me that I, I keep witnessing to him. He said, I know you're praying for me. And you told me, I, you know. And I said, well, I'm telling you right now, you've operated, Scott, on a Paul's basis. And that's this. You think you've got to change and then come to Christ. That's a lie. You have no capacity to change. You come how? As you are. Because he comes to you as you are. But then once you get in, we still recycle the same old lies, don't we? We're given to them. And we say, oh, we need to make some changes. No, what we need to affirm is positional truth, and that is the changes have already been made because the once you got saved, you became on that day, at that moment, a new creation. You are, God's not over here in this camp saying, all right, Pat, come on now, straighten up so you can move over here. God's already moved you over here. You're here now. That's positional truth. And the only way to have practical application is to believe the positional truth. God makes the call. It's God's judgment. This is what God has said about us. Do you want to argue with Him? But we do it, don't we? We don't want to argue with Him, but yet we do. Look what God said about this. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Will you please? Let's talk about Abraham. Using Abraham to illustrate that justification is by faith. It's the context of this, this chapter. Look at verse 17. As it is written, talking to Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed God 
who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. How about that? Now come to God's side. Don't look in the mirror. Look in the Bible. And come to God's side that God has said, you who had no righteous standing with me whatsoever and you were a sinner condemned to hell, that's the reality. And I'm calling into reality that which is not reality and now you're a saint. Now in Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, this is quoting from there. Abraham, Abram was once named, Abraham was once named Abram. Right? Abram means father of many. Abraham, Elohim, God gave him part of his name, means father of a multitude. It's like God was up in the ante. Abraham's like, I don't have any children yet. Well, you're the father of many. Still don't have any children. Then he messes, messes up, you know what he does. And then God says, I'm going to change your name and we're going to up the ante. You're a father of a multitude. You imagine the conversations that went on around the camp when somebody came to see Abraham because he was positioned in a strategic place where all roads were here and so people had to go through Abraham and he was a wealthy man. He trade, bought, this, sold, that, the other. He was a businessman. You're around the camp and say, what's your master's name? Abraham. Abraham. How many children does he have? Well, because that means father of a multitude. It was, a, it, was, it was once a name of shame and scorn for him, but he believed. And he held on to that belief because God said, Abraham, you're a father of many nations. Because God speaks and calls us to existence that which is not. I'm so grateful we serve a powerful God. How are you defined? This is, this is still self. I can't get off of this. How you see yourself. How are you defined? Are you defined by your faith? Or are you defined by your failures? Which one is it? Because I can tell you this. We have a renewed mind. And we have a brand new mind. This, this mind has been made new and it's been washed. But if you don't wash it in position, it's been washed. But in practice, it's still filthy. And what we do is, is we start thinking things that are just not so. Ronald Reagan said that about liberals. He said it's not that they're dumb. It's just that they believe things that are just not so. I'm sorry. We have the mind of Christ. God's judgment concerning His Son. This is my beloved Son, I'm well pleased. Raised Him from the dead. Sent Him up to heaven. And sent the Holy Spirit in the meantime is my guarantee. Now, what do you want in your soup for a dime? Half a cow? Look at that. This is who we are now. We're not defined by our failures. We're defined by our faith. And if you're defined by your failures, you will define other people that way as well. You will. You will. That's what will stick out in your mind. You know why people are so reluctant to repent in church circles? Because they're fearful that after they repent or make something known, that the rest of their life they're going to be seen that way. I want to tell you something right now. Fully on that. You don't worry about what other people think because it's not their judgment that matters. All it does is show that either they don't know the Lord at all or they certainly are not being washed by His Word to realize that they're as clean as you are and as you are clean as they are in God's Son. You look at somebody and see them as a whatever after they've repented and asked God to forgive them? You're in sin. Look at 1 Corinthians. Shame on us as Christians how we act sometimes. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just some examples. 
We've talked about this before, but let's see it in black and white. It makes a difference when you see it in black and white. Look at it right here. Please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Immoral, divisive, getting drunk at the Lord's table, suing one another, putting up with known blatant sin, a stepson having relations with his stepmother of all things, but saints. And right there, in many of your versions, not all of them, but in many of your versions, it'll say called, and the 2B is in italics. The reason it's there is because it's not supposed to be there. It says, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. Not to be saints. Saints. You're a saint now. A saint is to be in Christ. An ain't is to be in Adam. Look at 2 Corinthians. Nobody would ever... There's a church in my community. I've said this before. There's a church in the community where I come from and they named it Corinth Baptist Church. I'm thinking, why? Did you not read Corinthians? Did y'all read later? Go, Woo! <laughs> we want to be divisive. We want to be... We want to sue one another. We want to be just a train wreck. Corinth Baptist Church. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. No, I'm saying... Okay. Paul... An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the churches of God, which is it, Corinth, with the saints. Saints. Addressed them as saints. Hebrews chapter 12. Just going to look at it by way of illustration. Hebrews chapter 12. Can I ask you something? Just, just, just think about this for a minute. In this hall of faith, scan the hall of faith. Do it this afternoon when you have some time. Look at the Hall of Faith and see how they're commended and see if you can find any record of their failure. It's just not there. Does that mean they had none? <laughs> by, not, by the, not by long shot. That they had no failures? Noah? They got drunk in the aftermath of being spared? I, and drunk in shame in front of his sons? Abraham took matters into his own hands, fathered a child to Hagar. Noah took matters into his own hands, killed an Egyptian, had to be put in the desert for 40 years. You know, you got to go to the Old Testament to read that because it hasn't found its way in the New. Why? Because whatever makes it to the judgment seat doesn't make it to the mercy seat. Praise God. Hallelujah. Classic example, Judges chapter 6, verse 12. Remember that one? Judges, chapter 6, verse 12. Gideon. You remember Gideon? <laughs> Gideon was threshing wheat in the valley. You don't thresh wheat in the valley. You thresh wheat where the wind can blow on it. So you've got to be in somewhere where the wind's blowing. He's there couched in the valley. Why? Because he was a coward. Like me. In practice. But in position. Look what God called him. Let me ask you this. Now, when you read verse 12, after you read it, answer the question, is that positional truth or is it practical truth? Which one is it? Look what it says. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. It's positional. 
Gideon was going. I guarantee you he's doing that. Who the world are you talking to? And God said, no, no, no. With you, you are what you are. But I'm calling something into being that is not. And by receiving that, it became a reality. That's true for us. God has called us some things that we've never called on ourselves. We're letting it say it. Look at something you can't even bring out of your mouth. I am righteous. Because, oh, I'll get prideful, I'll get arrogant. That's not pride or arrogance, it's truth. But you know what it is? It's humble truth, it's amazing truth. That doesn't build your pride. It doesn't build you up. It builds Christ up. This is what God did. I didn't do it. God did it. Little wonder the Bible calls us to renew our minds. There are places all over the Bible like this. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Pivotal places in the Bible. We've seen them before. we talked about them before. This is a passion. This burns in me. This is, this is just shed up in me and my bones. I'm telling you right now. Because there's a bunch of needless, needless victory victorylessness going on in the body of Christ that should not be. And it is over this. It is over this. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm telling you right now, and what does he do? He says... And verses one, chapters one through eleven is faith, and chapters twelve and sixteen is works. And we act like Romans begins in twelve one instead of one one. But Romans, this is a profound truth. Romans begins in chapter one, verse one. And the reason that's so important is, is when he says, "Okay, based on the mercies of God, what mercies? The ones that were just spelled out in the first eleven chapters. Here's how you should live, right there. Positional truth." Is the turnstile. It's like walking into Six Flags. Here you are, if you haven't liked Six Flags. If you don't like this, the analogy won't work well for you. But let's just say you like it. And you're out there in the middle of the crowd and all the hustle and bustle, and you, you pay the ticket, and you go into the turnstile. And it's another world. For me, it's chaos and nervousness and anxiety and fear. Thinking and saying, I'm hoping that I come through this turnstile on the way out with the same number of children that I had when I walked in. And then you come in there and it's just a whole... But to the kids, it's like that. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1, you're coming into this, this, this beautiful life that can be based on the glories of what God has already done. Ephesians 4, 1 is another one. It's all over the Bible. I'm just saying it's appropriate and right that we, we constantly affirm these truths because they are all over the New Testament. Especially Romans chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with long loneliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. What is he saying? He's saying this. Therefore, the therefore means that therefore, in light of what I just shared with you in chapters 1, 2, and 3, 
physician on trial. Walt Worthy. Practical admonition. And the rest of the chapter talks about it. It's the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. God didn't just use one apostle to write this. He wrote another one. He wrote, look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak of against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Why does he beg them? Beg you. I'm, I'm encouraging you. I beseech you. It's an admonition. It's not a commandment. I'm, please, I'm encouraging you. Man, hey, let's do this. Why is it not a command? Because doing that doesn't make that true. The fact that that's true leads to doing it. And he says, listen, and what's true? Just what he just shared in verse 9. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people of God, who are now the people of God, and who had not attained mercy, but now have attained mercy. Now, walk as pilgrims, because you are otherworldly. You are not of this world anymore. Positional truth leads to practice. You see it? Jill and I had an occasion to go to downtown Atlanta. I can't get through all of this. 2 Corinthians 6, 11. We've looked at this before. I'm going to go ahead. God willing. 2 Corinthians. This one, we ought to be getting a little bit giddy, really, to think about this, that God has said. If you're a believer this morning, you're to be going, man, this is... I mean, th- th- God has... God took down this bunch... Y'all, and put me over. They put me over here. Into the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm, this is who I am now. And my my failures don't define me. My faith does. I'm defined by my Lord. I'm gone, dead. I died in the died death of Christ, and now I'm living the life of Christ. First Corinthians six eleven. What it says. I'm sorry. Let's back up. Do you not know that the unrighteous in verse nine? will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived into fornicators, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. Watch this. And such, what? Were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. There were still people among them that were still doing these things. But if you're a saint and you steal, you are not a thief. You're a saint who stole, who needs to repent. But you're not a thief. If you have ill will to somebody in a fit of rage, you committed murder. But you're not a murderer. Because that's who you once were. But that's not who you are now. What is that? Practical truth or positional truth? It's positional. But what does it do? Positional truth empowers it being lived out in practice. Please, will you listen to this? Can I, can I, will you listen to this? Practical, practical holiness is the fruit of belief in positional truth. Practical holiness is the fruit 
of belief in positional truth. And we can all oh, plumb the depths. Oh, we've got, I've got several more scriptures. We don't have time to. Jill and I had an occasion to go downtown Atlanta this week for to meet with somebody. And on the way there, we passed by a corner that I was familiar with and Brian and I have joked about before. And on the street corner, pictures got, I, I couldn't resist. We took a picture of it. I asked Spencer to put it on the screen this morning. Maybe you'll be able to see it. Um, it's a, this is the corner. It's a street corner in downtown Atlanta. And uh, he's fixing to tee it up. Can y'all see what that says? Can you read that? It says, oh, that's a church. And the name of the church is the perfect church. That's the name of it. I didn't make that up. We were at the red light. I said, Jill. And I rolled down the window real hard. And we were fast. I said, go take a picture of that. There it is. See? <laughs> that exists. I'm not making that up. That's in Atlanta. That's not very far from. It's just on the other side of the interstate from Turner Field. And I looked at that. And here's my first thought. I had a lot of thoughts. I'm not criticizing <laughs> them at all. Either. Here's my first thought. Huh? That won't make you do it. No, 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 no. Well, <laughs> this, was my, this was really my first thought. I will never join that church because if I do, they have to change the name. <laughs> Amen. Do you feel that way? You ever join that church? They have to change the name because all of a sudden it will become the imperfect church. But you know what? I want to illustrate a point with that. God's church is perfect. I have no idea what their theology is. I'm not. I'm not endorsing them. Don't go join the perfect church. They might not have any members. <laughs> they said maybe they don't have members. Amen. It's abandoned, isn't it? Yeah. I think the I think the front it says that, and then when you walk in, they're selling hot dogs. <laughs> but I, I, just to illustrate something though, if you are a part of the church. And the only way is, is through the new birth. You're part of the perfect church. And, and, and there are people all over the country and really all over the world who name the name of Christ who would say it was heresy to say that. Mm-hmm. A lot of them is, is because they're just ignorant of the Word of God. A lot of it's pride and a lot of it is that the pastor uses non-biblical terms and non-biblical teaching in order to motivate holy living. You know what motivates holy living? Scripturally? For the love of Christ compels us that one died for all and therefore all died. And they all died so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and rose again. That's the motivation. It is the goodness of God. If it's motivated any other way, it is fleshly manipulation. And I want you to know something. Modern day psychology has so encroached on the church of God and counselors all the time. I run into this all the time. I ran into it the week before last. Will incorporate psychological babble with spiritual truth and slap Jesus' name on it. And use everything they can to get people to change their behavior when only the new birth will. Because what? We regard no one according to the flesh. And when once you're in, 
You do not grow in sanctification by carnal means. You grow in sanctification by spiritual means. And the spiritual means is, is to appropriate by faith positional truth. And that is to come into God's agreement of His testimony concerning His blessed Son. And you'll find Him to be much better. As a matter of fact, you'll find yourself frustrated in your attempts to try to understand Him and know Him better and to talk about Him in ways that He deserves. And your worship is going to go to a new place. That's why worship is so preference-driven. It's because everybody comes in and they're worshiping in the flesh what should have been done in the Spirit. And if you're in the Spirit and we come in here and Spencer picks up a juice harp and plays a juice harp and we sing, we shall all gather at the river, you could do it with a thrill because of what God has done inside you and you begin to believe it. Alright, now, juice harp, that's the way you say it. If y'all want to know what that is later, it goes... Dang, 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 dang. We're a part of the perfect church. The Bible says, positionally speaking, practically that's not true. You know that's not true, practically. But I don't know what their motivation is, and really don't, it doesn't matter. I'm not criticizing them. But if their motivation was that we're going to appropriate by faith positional truth in this church, call it the perfect church. Call this one the perfect church. You're a part of a perfect church because you serve a perfect Savior. And I don't know what we're going to be like, but I know this. One day we shall see Him as He is and that hope motivates me for holy living. And I'm telling you right now, we need to appropriate this by faith, dear ones. One more verse, Hebrews 10, 14. Pick it up. Don't leave it. Don't let it go, Spencer. Thank you so much for flashing it up there. Thank you for your photography work, Jill. Hebrews. Alright, pick it up on that. The perfect church. The Bible says there's going to come a day. Watch this. Watch this. The Bible says we're going to be presented in front of God. You know what He's going to say? Here's my child. Holy. Blameless. And above reproach. And here's what the devil wants to do to you. You ain't lived like that. Hey, no joke. Let me tell you something right now. My past has not changed when I got saved. But God changed the meaning of it. And what it once was, was a stick to beat me over the head with, is no more. It is a cause to break forth in a crescendo of praise to say that the Lord has delivered me and I am His and He is mine. Hallelujah. You know why people get so upset about that? Because death can't stand life. And we're talking life here. The church is perfect. And you're, if you're in the church, you're part of a perfect church. In practice, we're not perfect. God's working on every one of us. But in position, we're perfect. Now watch this. Biblical basis, it doesn't matter that I say that. Fully on what i got to say. Biblical basis, look at this. Pro, uh, uh, Proverbs. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 14. Now, sometimes in the same verse, God will interpose and interplay practical truth with positional truth. It'll be the same verse. This is one of those verses. Watch this. For by one offering, one offering, not, not another one, Jesus is our representative, first Adam, he's also called, I mean the second Adam, but he's also called the last Adam. Watch this. He has perfect. Expected. What does it say? Forever. What is that? Is that positional truth or practical? 
It's positional. Right there. Perfect church. Those who are being sanctified. He did it one offering. He's By one offering, He has perfected forever positional truth. Those who are in the process and practice of growing in that. You see it? So, perfected forever is positional truth. Those who are being sanctified is what? Practical truth. It's in the same verse. That makes that, dear ones, from a positional standpoint, theologically on target. I don't know what's behind that wall. It might be a hot dog stand. And I don't know what their theology is. I have no idea. But I can tell you this. We need to appropriate by faith that label. And it does not cause... (laughs) That's another just lie from the devil. Oh, we'll get too cocky and arrogant then. We'll get too prideful then and then we'll start living loose. What? 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 I'll tell you one thing. The Apostle Paul preached that truth and knew that he was going to be misunderstood like that. And he knew that he was going to be misaligned like that. And he knew that people were going to say, Oh, yeah, this... And he answered the question for us. How can you who died to sin, live any longer therein. Why? Positional truth. I'm out of this camp, and I've been put into this one. That's what happened to you. Now, we hadn't even got into the fact of how it deals with others, and I don't make an apology for that, but I wanted to. But I will just say this. That will recalibrate every bit of your thinking about yourself and about the church. Because you know what? We need to be patient and kind with one another. And when somebody repents of a sin, it's between them and God, but they repent of a sin, and you still see that person, you see them walk down the hallway, and well, there goes that whatever. And you see that person, and that's how you see them. There's the person that lied to me. There's the person that told a lie. There's the person that did that. If you see them that way, then what you've done is, is you have elevated yourself in judgment higher than God. That means that you're now God. And that your judgment concerning that is superior to God's judgment concerning His Son and His child. Now, do you want to do that? That's what's happening. And now you know it. So better be careful about doing that now because God's going to hold you accountable for knowing that. God said, don't you call something I call clean, filthy, Peter. You go talk to this Gentile. I say he's clean and I cleaned him through the blood of my son and who the son makes free is free indeed let me ask you something that should do something how we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning because when you take that cup it's the power of that blood not the cup but what it symbolizes that cleansed you and me and made this a reality it is that broken body spilt and crushed by God that made that a reality so it wasn't just some kind of transaction where God got cute and said, philosophically, I think I'll say, you're in this camp and I'll just put you over here. No, it took a radical, amazing act of love, grace, and mercy. And it was a substitutionary atoning, all-sufficient, sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so when we take this cup of communion, it is a celebratory cup. It is a chef, of joy. It is a cup of Mephibosheths who were crippled and get to sit at the king's table when we thought the king was going to cut our throat because we were part of a dynasty that could threaten his. And Jesus said, no, you're a part of mine and you are mine. You sit at my table. 
So saints, sit at His table and enjoy it and worship Him. And you receive that you're a part. If you're a saved person, you're a part of the perfect church. Amen.